you'd take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me back to the book of Revelation. We're in Revelation chapter 10 this morning. The message title is, The White Flag is Out. The White Flag is Out. Revelation chapter 10, now in our 14th message as we're journeying through this book. John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of, of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a lying uh, roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, and when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and languages uh, and nations and kings. By the way, how'd you like the uh, sermon illustration God gave us this week over Russia of things falling? Some of you might have been skeptical or doubtful a couple of weeks ago as we were talking about the sky falling, things like that happening. God gave us a little glimpse of that this week, didn't he? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word indeed as we read it and study it. Sometimes it's sweet, sometimes it's bitter. We don't always read what we want to hear. But God, we thank you for that. We thank you that you tell us about our condition and our need. Father, help us to understand that what the Bible is saying here is that there is a limited amount of time to life as we know it on this earth and to this earth. The Bible says you are making all things new. We don't know when you're going to bring an end to things as we know them. Could be today, could be a thousand years from now. But God, help us to be prepared. Help us to be ready that we would know you through faith in Jesus Christ. 
And that we would be good stewards and busy about serving you. That when we do stand before you one day, we would hear those words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Whatever amount of time that we have left, God just help us to be faithful stewards. I pray for even one here today who may not be ready that your Holy Spirit would speak to them today. Do a work of grace in their hearts. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A question that has certainly been on the hearts and minds of God's people for a long, long time is the question, How long, O Lord? How long will we have to endure some of the evil and and suffering that we see upon the face of the earth? How long will we witness some of the tragedies that we have to witness? The world seems so dark, so wicked, so lost. How long, Lord, before you're going to finally come back and set everything right? It's a question that many people ask. Folks, I want you to understand that it is a question that has been around for a long, long time. In fact, if you were to read Psalm 73, you would find even back then that the psalmist was asking that same question. He said, why, why Lord, why do the wicked seem to prosper and the righteous suffer? Now we know that there are biblical answers to deal with that. And I want to cover some of those right now in the introduction. Now the first one might be to some people a little bit overly simplistic, but nonetheless, we have to deal with it. Certainly one of the reasons for human suffering that we witness is sin. Now that can be broken down into three different subcategories. First of all, there is the sin of others. You may suffer because of somebody else's sinful choices. For instance, if a gunman were to walk into a school or a shopping mall and to end the life of one of your loved ones. Or if a drunk driver were to hit one of your loved ones head on and and your loved one was left maimed the rest of their life. Suffering because of the sinful choices of other people. And then secondly, there's our own sinful choices. For instance, somebody might abuse their body terribly and then have to live the rest of their lives bearing the consequences of that. And then thirdly, and this is one we we often overlook when speaking of sin, but we need to realize that sin darkened the entire created order. Paul said in Romans chapter 8 that all of creation is groaning. You've got to put natural disasters and all sorts of things into that category. We know that God created a universe that was perfect with peace and order. 
But then sin entered into the picture and now we see horrific things happening like tsunamis and earthquakes. And so sin. A second reason for suffering is Satan. We need to realize as the people of God that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. The Bible says we have an enemy, Satan. And in 1 Peter 5, Peter says he is like a roaring lion seeking somebody to devour. A third reason for suffering is saintliness. God may be allowing us to be tested like he did with Job. Job came uh, before, uh, Job was before God and Satan came before God accusing God about Job and God allowed Satan to touch Job because God was proving a point through all that that Job would indeed remain faithful through it all. But Job was not suffering. Job was not experiencing evil because of any kind of sin in his life because even God pronounced him as, as being righteous. Job suffered because he was a saint of God. And again, God was just allowing all that to be proven out. Now, a last reason that is beyond human explanation is the sovereignty of God. Paul encountered a thorn in the flesh, and God had a purpose in that thorn staying. Paul never got a specific reason for the thorn other than that it was to keep him humble after he had had that visit to heaven. And God also told Paul that through that thorn staying, he would learn dependence upon God and that God's grace is sufficient. Well, in Psalm 73, after reflecting upon how the wicked don't seem to suffer and go through trials like the righteous, the psalmist said that he finally went into the sanctuary and he understood. He said, for now they seem to prosper, but in reality their feet are, are set on slippery places and they'll end up undergoing far more suffering than the righteous do for now. Well, folks, as we come to Revelation 10 this morning, we see what slippery ground the feet of the wicked stand on indeed. As we get into chapter 10, you would expect the blowing of the seventh trumpet. But just as there was a parenthesis, an interlude between the breaking of the sixth and seventh seal, so there is an interlude between the blowing of the sixth and seventh trumpet. Now these interludes are not coincidental. They're not arbitrary. They are given to remind us that uh, even more while hell is breaking loose on earth, God is still sovereign. God is the one who is ultimately in control. In fact, he's the divine conductor behind it all. And regardless of what we see happening on the earth, God's hand is still on the steering wheel and his foot is on the brake pedal or on the gas pedal and God is bringing everything to pass in his good time. History is his story. We need to keep that in mind sometimes, folks, as we do look around the world and see human suffering and evil, that God has not lost control of this universe. God is still very much in control. 
Now this chapter brings us approximately to the midpoint of the seven year tribulation. The seven seals covered the first quarter. The seventh seal which consists of the seven trumpets covers the next quarter. Uh, now we've completed looking at six trumpets and in chapter, uh, chapter 11 the seventh trumpet will sound. But until then, again, chapter 10 is an interlude. Once the interlude is over, the seventh trumpet will sound. And at that point, what chapter 11 talks about will come to pass. In chapter 11, beginning with verse 15, John says, Then the seventh angel blew its trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. In other words, when the seventh trumpet sounds, it's like the race cars are in the final straightaway. It's all about to be over. The checkered flag is about to be waved and the Lord will finally be victorious. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, in what we call the Lord's Prayer, He said, we need to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, the sounding of the seventh trumpet will establish that. Because it will usher in the seven bowls of wrath, and at the conclusion of that will be the battle of Armageddon, and the binding of Satan, and the establishment of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. And what will be experienced is a little bit of heaven on earth. But again, before that, we have this interlude. It's like a white flag. It's the final lap, and it focuses on several things. First of all, I want you to notice, beginning in verse 1, that we are called upon to focus on this mighty angel. A mighty angel that he begins talking about in verse 1. He says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice like a lion roaring. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. Now, as it does throughout Revelation, the words I saw mark the beginning of a new vision. And so as chapter 10 is beginning, John is recording a brand new vision that he is now seeing. A vision that goes along with the others and builds upon them, but nonetheless a vision that is separate from the others. What John sees here is a strong angel. This strong angel is distinct from the seven angels who sounded the seven trumpets. Now as you might imagine, there is and there has been a great deal of discussion about the identity of this strong angel. Many interpreters are absolutely certain that this is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Now other interpreters, myself, being one of them, are just as certain that this angel is not the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now those who say that he is Jesus have some very good arguments on their side. They look at the description that's given. He's clothed with a cloud. They point to the many instances in the Word of God when God reveals Himself in a cloud. An example of that would be when He led the children of Israel in the wilderness with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They also point to the cloud that sat down on the mountain at the giving of the Ten Commandments. And furthermore, they point out the ascension of Jesus, that the angels announced that Jesus would come again one day, and when He came, He would come with the clouds. And then they talk about the rainbow here, and the face like the sun, and they say that's the glory of Jesus Christ shining, and they talk about the the feet like uh, pillars of fire, and that's judgment, and so therefore they say this must be the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that's your conviction, I'm not going to argue with you one bit. But I don't agree. Now the first tip we have is that John says another strong angel. The word is alas, meaning another of the same kind. And so this identifies this angel as one exactly like the previously mentioned trumpet angels. Now if Christ were being referred to here, one would expect not the word alas, but heteros that's used to describe another of a different kind. And furthermore, we need to be reminded that Christ is not simply another angel. In fact, Hebrews chapter 1 goes to great pains to show that Jesus Christ is not simply an angel. Christ is altogether different. He is the only begotten Son of God. And in Colossians 1 it says, Through Him everything that was created was made. In other words, Jesus Christ is the agent of creation. Now the next tip that we have that Jesus uh, it, that, that this is not Jesus is that Jesus is never referred to in the book of Revelation as simply an angel. John always uh, speaks of Jesus as the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the Alpha and Omega. And then here again, still another tip that this is not Jesus is the oath that he swears by. Beginning in verse 5 it says, And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay." Now in the Bible, God always swears by himself, never by another, because there is nothing or no one greater than God. And again, Colossians says that Jesus Christ is the agent of creation, but here we have this strong angel swearing to another, swearing to the one who made heaven and earth and sea. And so again, it just doesn't seem like we're talking about Jesus Christ here. So maybe this is Michael or another archangel or somebody like him. He's a mighty angel. Now folks, as we study through the book of Revelation, it's very interesting to see what a prominent role angels play in the narrative. Angels are mentioned about 66 times in the book of Revelation. 
But can I caution you about something? Don't be guilty of what many were guilty of about 15 or 20 years ago. Everybody was just simply concentrating on angels. They were writing books on angels. They were, they were listening to sermons and Bible studies on angels. And, and there was this unhealthy fascination with angels that I think was really taking attention away from Jesus Christ. We are to worship Jesus Christ because Christ said, If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Angels are just described in the Bible as God's heavenly messengers to serve the saints of God. But we never want to give too much attention to angels. Well verse 2 tells us that in his hand was a little book that was opened. It has been opened. It remains open. In other words the things that we're about to read about and are still about to read about will most certainly come to pass. You know, people want to talk, they want to avoid talking about judgment. They want to discuss nicer things. But folks, judgment is coming. It can't be avoided. Placing his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land symbolizes God's authority over the earth. As the scripture says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And so what we see God doing here is taking back full possession of that which is rightfully his. Now verse 4 is unusual. John is told to seal up. What the seven thunders have said. Revelation, on the other hand, is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in Revelation, the mystery of the ages is being told. But John here is told to seal up what he heard. You know, there are some things that are so wonderful that we couldn't understand them. We won't know about some of those things until we see Jesus. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2 that eye has not seen nor ear heard nor has it ever even entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. There are some things that if we were told about them today, we would not even in our human understanding be able to comprehend them because they're too great. And likewise, there are other things that we simply wouldn't want to hear because they're bad. What if, for instance, you were told today that you only had one more day to live? Would you want to know that? I don't think I'd want to know that. If I knew that, I'm afraid I would spend the rest of, of, of the, my last day on earth, I would be worrying and fretting about everything. I would just be wringing my hands and, and worrying about, oh, I need to get this done or that done or whatever. You know, there are some things that's good if God doesn't share them with us. David said in Psalm 139 that all of our days are in God's hand. God knows everything about our days before we live, even one of them. But I'm glad God doesn't let me know the totality of my days. 
Jesus said we would just worry. And we're not to worry, but we're to trust God that he will provide for us according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now getting back to the oath that begins in verse 5. The end of that oath, the best translation of the phrase is that there shall be no more delay. Now I want you to think about what's being said here. We've been in a time of grace for hundreds and hundreds of years. The gospel has been being preached and Jesus has not returned yet. Now 2 Peter 3.9 tells us why he's not returned yet. Because God is long-suffering and he's patient and he's not willing that any should perish. In other words, he's giving more people time to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But all this time that we've been in on the earth, you think about the church age since the day of Pentecost. And you think about missions and you think about what's going on on the face of the earth and the gospel being preached, the word of God being shared. And Jesus has still not returned. But God, it's like God is saying here, time is up, enough is enough, no more delay now think about verse 7 he says there but that that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel the mystery of God would be fulfilled think about it if we're at the midpoint of the tribulation here in chapter 10 as many scholars believe that means 1260 days have passed From chapter 11 onward in the book of Revelation, that means mankind only has another 1,260 more days left on this earth the way that it currently is. Now can you imagine what that will be like? Or what it should be like? Only three and a half years left before the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of the book of Genesis where God says to Noah to prepare the ark and he tells Noah that there's only 120 years left before the flood and everybody will be destroyed. And in Noah's day, just like right here in the book of Revelation, people are just going on in their sin as though they have all the time in the world. I've got a question for you though. How would you live and what would you do if you knew to your life there was only three and a half more years at best? The Bible says life is but a vapor. And that's why Moses said in Psalm 90, Lord teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to wisdom. Folks, what John sees here is like the final lap before the checkered flag. Now I want you to understand something with me today. Lest you're sitting here thinking, Preacher, what in the world does all this have to do with me? Folks, it has everything to do with you and me today. What are we living for? Are we redeeming the time? We need to be evaluating how we're living our lives. Because life and time itself will simply not continue on forever. There is a limit to your earthly life and there is a limit to this world as we know it. And so Jesus said we're to be laying up our treasures in heaven and we're to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians 5 says, Awake, O sleeper, and realize that Christ is shining upon you. And so you need to redeem the time, understanding that the days are evil. You need to be presenting your life, and I need to be presenting my life as that sacrifice before God that is acceptable to Him. As Paul says in Romans 12.1, Ephesians 4.1 says we need to be living in a way that is worthy of the calling that we have. God's got a calling on your life and my life. What are we doing with our lives? Are we being a good steward of what God has entrusted to us? Are we serving the Lord? Are we just spinning our wheels, putting all of our time and attention on this world? 1 John 2 says, Love not the world nor the things of the world because uh, the things of this world and this world itself is passing away. And so we need to be living in such a way as those who will eventually one day stand before God and we will have to give an account of our lives. And so do we know Christ? Do we have a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we have peace with God? And are we living every day of our lives as a good steward of what God has presented to us? Are we serving God? Are we trying to glorify God in our lives? Or are we living for self? Are we trying to advance God's kingdom or our own kingdom? It matters how we live. Because again, there is a time limit on everybody in this room. There's a time limit. And one of these days when you breathe your last breath and I breathe my last breath, we're going to be shoveled out into an eternity. And is it going to be an eternity with Christ or without Christ? It matters. Because you prepare for that time now. You see, the Bible is saying once we die, it's too late. Then our eternity is settled. And so as Amos said, prepare to meet your God. And I want to ask you this morning, are you prepared to meet God? And that's the first lesson in this chapter that God is saying enough is enough, no more delay. Everything that God has, has told us about in His Word, He says in verse 7, is finally going to be fulfilled. It is going to come to pass. And ladies and gentlemen, you can count on the fact that God is going to wrap things up just as God said He would. God's going to be faithful to His Word. Are we ready? Am I ready? Are you ready? Have you made peace with God? Second thing I want you to notice here is a mysterious action that begins there in verse 8. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. But in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. 
Look at what John is told. He's not just told to read this book, but he's told to eat it. Now, it's one thing to read a book. It's quite another thing to eat a book. This is mysterious. John's speaking symbolically. What does this mean? Well, folks, look at the description of the book. It's bittersweet. Folks, this book represents the Word of God. Now, specifically, we can assume it is that part of the Word of God that has to do with the end of time and the judgments of God. But nonetheless, it is the Word of God, and John is told to eat this book. We're to assimilate the Word of God. It's not to be a casual thing. We're told that the Bible is like food. In the temptation narratives, in Matthew 4, for instance, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The Bible is like food for your soul and my soul. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter says, We're to be like little babies who desire milk. You know what happens to babies if you don't feed them on time, right? They start squalling. They're hungry. They want that milk. Well, we're to be like a newborn baby desiring that milk, but we're not to stay on the milk. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, for instance, that we're to move beyond the milk of the Word and we're to start chewing on the meat of the Word. We're to move into, into things that are not just so basic anymore. And the psalmist said in Psalm 119, Psalm 119 verse 103, that the Bible is sweeter than honey. And so the Word of God is spiritual nourishment. It's food for us. And just like our stomach lets us know when we're physically hungry, now not yet I hope, it's not even close to noon yet, so don't be looking at your watch. But when our, our stomach lets us know when it's time for physical food, folks, God has given us spiritual food, the Word of God. John is to eat it, he's to take it in, he's to digest it. And I want to say to you today, if it was important for John to do that in his context, it's equally important for you and I to do that in our context. As John was about to be given direction, so God will give you and me direction in His Word. Psalm, uh, I mean, Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And the promise of God is there that He will direct your path. The Bible is God's love letter to you. It's a road map for your life. It tells me about my past and how I can be forgiven. It tells me about my present and it tells me about my future. Now, as I study the Scripture, it's both bitter and sweet. In the Bible, we read about God and His grace and mercy. That's sweet. We read about sin. That's bitter. We read about salvation. That's sweet. We read about heaven. Likewise, that's sweet. But we read about hell and judgment. That's better, uh, bitter. The Word of God is both sweet and bitter. But it's God's Word. 
And it ought to be precious to us. We need to hunger for it. We need to assimilate it. Folks, I can't stand up here and tell you that everything is going to turn out okay for everybody. I would love to stand up here and just preach all of the sweet things about the Bible that you'd walk out of here every single week and say, Oh, brother, that was so encouraging. But I cannot preach through the whole counsel of God and tell you that everything's going to turn out okay for everybody. It's not. If you're visiting with us this morning and you belong to a church somewhere where the preacher gets up and says everything's going to be okay for everybody and everything's going to pan out just just fine and dandy and everybody's going to make it to heaven. You know what you need to do? You need to find you another church. Folks, we need to look at the whole counsel of God. That's why I'm not so big on some of these little devotional books that today they'll grab a verse from this passage out of context, give you a few little cotton candy thoughts about it, and then tomorrow they move somewhere entirely different in the Word of God and give you another little snippet of a verse and some little cotton candy thoughts on it. We need to be studying more systematically the whole counsel of God. And again, as we do, it's both bitter and sweet. Beware of anybody who tells you everything is good all the time. Kind of like the church that went to their pastor and said, Pastor, do you believe in hell? And he said, no, I most certainly don't. They said, you don't? You believe everybody's going to make it to heaven? They said, yeah. They said, well, would you do us a favor and resign today? He said, what's up? They said, if there's no hell... We just need to shut doors and go home. They said, now granted, we could talk about all the the glories of being a Christian and the Christian life and the joys we get out of that. But if everybody's going to end up okay after all, why do we even need church? Just close the door and go home. You know, there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that even for some of you seated here today, though you come here and hear the Word of God preached and you hear it taught in your Sunday school class, The judgment seat of Christ is not going to be pleasant for you. And some of you, sad to say, will even be a part of that great white throne judgment that Revelation 20 talks about. When the book of life is open and the name search is given and your name is not going to be found written in the book of life. I hate it. But I know it's true. You see, for many people today, Christianity is just sort of a cultural thing in America. It's what we get up on Sunday morning and do. And you come in here week after week, and you've never been transformed by the power of God. You've never been redeemed. You've never been born again. I want to emphasize to you again, while church attendance is important, church attendance will not save you. 
The Bible said, Jesus says in John 3 that unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And I want to remind you that Jesus was talking to a very religious man there, one of the leaders in Israel, a man by the name of Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was obviously under conviction and he came to Jesus by night and Jesus said to him, Nicodemus, unless a man is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. In other words, there's got to be that time in your life that the Holy Spirit of the living God gets a hold of your heart and convicts you of your sin and draws you to faith in Jesus Christ. And you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you are changed. The Bible says if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Has that happened in your life? Now, I realize it's more dramatic for some than for others. But nonetheless, has that transformation occurred? Has the new birth occurred? If not, you are not prepared to meet God. Please hear me today on that. You're not ready. Don't dare leave this earth without being ready. You say, well, how how can I know I won't do that? Get ready today because you don't know that you have anything. You don't even know that you have the rest of today. So again, I know that people come here and they hear about Jesus and they hear about the new birth and they hear about being saved, but it's not happened. And sadly, that's the way it's always been. It even happened to Jesus. Not everybody listened to him. In fact, Jesus told a parable about how it's going to be. He said, you know, preaching the, the good news of the kingdom of God is kind of like a farmer going out to sow his seed. And as he sows his seed, some of the seed falls on, on the hard path. And it doesn't penetrate. And in Jesus' interpretation of that parable, he said that hard soil, that's that's a hard heart and, and Satan comes and snatches away the seed before it can take root and bear fruit. And How sad that that happens. Not everybody who hears responds. And that may be the case with somebody here today. And I want to say to you today, please change before it's too late. Would you please give some attention to your spiritual life? It's kind of like Elijah told the people of Israel on Mount Carmel when they went to witness the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. The people of Israel couldn't make up their minds if they were going to follow Jehovah God or if they were going to follow Baal. And Elijah looked at them and he asked, Why halt ye between two positions? In other words... Make up your mind. Could God be saying that to some of you here today? Make up your mind. What are you going to do with Jesus? Verse 11, you'll notice John is told not just to eat, but to tell it again. The message is so urgent. He's to eat it. He's to assimilate it. And then he's to tell it again. In other places in the Bible, we're told to do the same. To take it in and give it out. Folks, that's what we're to do as, as believers. In order to share the Word of God, first of all, we have to take it in ourselves. 
before I can preach to you, I've got to preach to myself. I've got to let the Word of God change me. I've got to assimilate it, digest it. It's, it's got to transform me before I can stand up here and preach with any kind of integrity or authenticity. It's got to affect me first. It's got to be the same with you as a Christian. Studying the Word of God, being faithful to that, letting God grow you and mature you and change you through that, and then you don't keep it to yourself. You share it with others. You see, that's one of the reasons we have church. So corporately we come together. And, 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 and this is kind of the corporate application of what you and I do individually every day in our life. Private worship, then corporate worship. We come together. Hebrews 10 says we stir one another up. We encourage one another and all the more when we see the, that we see the day approaching. But we leave here not to keep it to ourselves. I like those churches that when you pull out of the parking lot, they have a sign out there that says you're now entering your mission field. You come here and assimilate it. You assimilate it in your own life. But then you don't keep it to yourself. You tell others. That's the normal Christian life. And again, John is being told here that time is almost up. Enough is enough. No more delay. Verse 7 says, everything God said about to be fulfilled. In other words, John's being told, be urgent about it. Be urgent about it. Are we? Are we prepared? Are we digesting the Word of God and growing ourselves? And are we giving it out to others? White flags out. Don't know when Jesus is going to come back. But we need to act with urgency. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning? As you do, I want you to think about some things. I want to challenge you to read the whole counsel of God. Spend some time in God's Word every day. Don't just read those books in the Bible or those passages in the Bible that you like. Folks, read it all. It's all there for a purpose. Let me say that as you're reading, you need to reflect and think. Most of us, it's said, read too much and we reflect too little. And that's why ten minutes later, we have no idea what we just read. We read too much and reflect too little. Develop the discipline of reading God's Word, meditating on it, digesting it, it's a discipline that's got to be developed, but it's worth it. As you read it, there are going to be things sweet to your ears. You're going to be so encouraged and so blessed. And then there's times that God's Word is going to take you to the woodshed. But folks, that's good. God only does that in our hearts because He loves us. But would you make a commitment right here today, though, that you're going to get into God's Word? And as you get into it and digest it, 
You're going to share it with others. You're not going to keep it to yourself. You're going to live with urgency. Because time might be short. Would you make a commitment to do that today? I wonder... If you were to be honest, how many hundreds of times have you heard sermons in your life that talked about the importance of God's Word? But have you acted on them? If not, would you do so this morning? Kind of in your mind, draw a line in the sand and say, God, I want to step over that line today. I've heard countless sermons in the past on the importance of God's Word, but none of them's changed me. But today, God, this year, I want to make a commitment to reading through your word, studying it, reflecting, meditating, and always ready to share with other people the things that you teach me. Would you do that? You'll be blessed. Father, speak to your people according to your word. May your Holy Spirit do exactly what you said he would do. Bring about both conviction and encouragement. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of invitation is going to be on screen here. As Jonathan leads us. I wonder if you're one of those this morning who still is not prepared. And you need to hear no more delay. One of these days, life is going to be over. And this world as we know it is going to be over. It's going to happen. Are you ready? Come forward and pray with one of the pastors about what it means to turn your life over to Jesus if you're not ready. Just be honest. God, I'm not ready to meet you. If my time were to come today, I'm not ready. Let us counsel with you and talk with you and pray with you about that. If you need to talk with us in the weeks to follow, by all means, let us do that. We want to help you. Have you done what the Word of God says about a church fellowship, the importance of being active somewhere and serving the Lord. Or maybe right there in the privacy of your seat, just making that commitment in your heart that you want to start studying the whole counsel of God. And as you do so each and every day, saying, God, just help whatever I read today. May you use it to transform my life. Would you make that commitment?